This is chapter 159 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a book of essays that examines the impact of a rising political star. Then we get some really good advice on how to deal with anxiety from thriller writer Megan Collins. All eyes are on the Democratic Party this week as they hold their virtual presidential convention. The Republicans get their turn next week. Among the bold-faced names tapped to address Democratic delegates is New York City Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Lover or hater, there's no denying the young Latina has captured the nation's attention since her defeat of a 10-term incumbent two years ago. A new book of essays titled AOC, The Fearless Rise and Powerful Resonance of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez takes a look at what her rise has meant to different people. The book happens to be edited by our newsroom colleague, Linda Lopez. She spoke with our Wayne Cabot. Linda, as we try journalistically to understand AOC's impact, this very confident, very opinionated newcomer to the American Congress who dethroned a 10-term incumbent, I'm going to ask you, so early in her political career, I mean, she's only a freshman, what are your takeaways from these essays you put together and that you uh, that you edited? You know, my takeaway was that all of these women, I was lucky to gather this amazing group, mostly women of color and a couple of men as well are in there who did an amazing job too. But I, what I took away from it was, and it was kind of what I thought about going in, that the conversation around Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez became national very quickly. And that conversation boiled down to that basic partisan conversation that you hear in politics. She was going to get demonized by some people. Her critics were going to attack her, attack her policies. And then she was also going to have her fans. You know, from a journalistic standpoint, it was more interesting to me to look at the actual impact that she was having, you know, on the communities that she represents and that she says that she wants to fight for. So rather than do a biography or something that was, you know, a collection of people saying they were fans of hers. I wanted to do something a little more urgent, a little more timely, and, you know, speak to her impact as a newly elected official, a woman, a Latina, and a new, young, energetic, passionate sort of leader. So what I took away from it was that there, that there is an impact that she has that speaks directly to people in those communities. Yeah, I, I get that. You, you wrote in the first chapter... Actually, you wrote the first chapter, The Meaning of AOC, mm-hmm. and uh, young Americans embrace her, many idolize her. I spoke, though, to an 87-year-old Korean War veteran who told me, you know, she's a socialist. So is there a meaning of AOC that both sides can agree on? You know, I think, and this is one of the chapters in the book, we have uh, one of our men, Nathan Robinson, talks about it pretty eloquently. There is a, a new generation of Democrats to whom socialism is not a scary word because it actually means a slightly different thing. Um, he argues that people don't have to be scared of AOC because she doesn't believe in the government taking over everything, taking over corporations and going you know, that route when people think of you know, the extreme of socialism. She's talking about a form of government that can work for all kinds of communities in the country. So I think that if you look at her, that many people who are inspired by her look at her as someone who who is trying to fight a good fight, who's trying to speak for communities that don't normally get their voices heard. And I think most people um, are on board with that kind of attitude. 
Well, it certainly is resonating. If you look on Twitter, uh, she tweeted out recently, billionaires need the working class. The working class does not need billionaires. And that got about 100,000 retweets and comments. Her takedowns of the powerful are epic. I mean, young people have been sharing her videos on Instagram and Twitter and, and YouTube, and they certainly reveal her, her intellect and her strength. The polar reaction, though, Linda, reveals, I think, what many see as a double standard. One male colleague we know on the floor of the Congress of the House mm-hmm. uh, gave a, an, an excuse-laden apology after calling her the B-word. What challenge does AOC face in trying to steer the national conversation, given society's perception of powerful women and the unfamiliarity society has of strong women of color? You know, I think that it's one of the reasons, uh, you know, shameless plug here, I was really happy to put this book out into the world right now because she's a leader who's different from other women political leaders that we've seen in the past. We've sort of grown up on this narrative that women who are in politics, who begin to rise and have some power, who take really bad and negative hits from all ends, are supposed to rise above it. They're supposed to take the high road, be silent, not, you know, respond back in any way that might be a strong response. And I think one of the reasons she resonates with so many people is because she decided from day one, I will stand here and I will give a response. So in the example that you gave where a fellow congressman used some pretty vulgar words to describe her, she decided to get up on the floor of Congress and not talk about some policy or something about her party or something you know, partisan, but to say, you have to respect me as a person and a woman. And that's the message I'm going to give, because I realize that if I don't get up and say that, I'm saying it's okay for this kind of thing to continue. And she's saying that leadership, especially if it's women, women of color, you know, people that we don't have in large numbers in our leadership should be able to expect that. I think it's worth pointing out that she was willing to let the original comment go, but it wasn't until uh, this congressman, uh, Ted uh, Yoho of Florida, then went on the floor himself and tried to give this apology that did not resonate for her at all when she stood up and said, okay, I've got to to respond to this. Linda, you are a journalist, but all of us have identities. You grew up in the Bronx, literally down the block from AOC, and uh, you write about uh, your father's reaction to AOC's victory. Tell us about that. Yeah, that one really struck me. Um, That one was a little emotional for me because my dad no longer lives in New York. He's over on the West Coast. He's remarried. And I know that he still feels the strong ties to our old neighborhood, as, as we all do. But I had no idea he was paying attention to what was going on politically there. So he was fully aware of AOC's primary run and how she was taking on Joe Crowley. And I didn't know that he was. But the night that she won her primary... I have two sisters, and so he texted the three of us all together on a group text, like dads do, (laughs) and said two words, Alexandria won. And all of us were so taken by surprise because, again, we had no idea he was following what was happening back home. But he also that he didn't have to say any more for us to know what he meant, which was that he was proud because he could see us in her. He raised his three daughters in this same place where, you know, it's the Bronx. It it ranks dead last in so many markers when it comes to, you know, setting your children up for success that he knew that we had to fight and wish for better to get there. And he saw someone who was so young and I think reminded him a little of us do that so successfully and so quickly 
that it struck him in a personal way. And so having him have that response struck me in a personal way. Linda, anyone who knows you sees that strength in you. Congratulations on the book and what you've accomplished here. This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Wayne. I love getting to talk about this with you. So nice. AOC, the fearless rise and powerful resonance of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you, Linda Lopez. Thank you, Wayne Cabot. See you around the newsroom one of these days if this COVID thing ever ends. (laughs) Hopefully. Only those who suffer from anxiety know how much fear it can stir up. Author Megan Collins taps into that angst in this week's chilling summer read, Behind the Red Door. We got personal with Megan, who, like her protagonist, lives with anxiety and all the brain games it likes to play. What can you tell us about Behind the Red Door without giving too much away? Uh, Well, Behind the Red Door, it's a book about a woman who comes to believe she has a connection to a decades-old kidnapping. Um, And now that that kidnapping victim from 20 years ago has gone missing again, um, she's desperate to find out what might be hidden in her memory to try to save her now. And it's a it's a very dark, kind of disturbing, um, twisty thriller that's also part family drama. Um, and so there's kind of a lot going on in there. <laughs> <laughs> and did I hear it was inspired by a true story? It's not exactly inspired by a specific true story, but um, I'm always, as I think many thriller writers are and many people in general, I'm always interested in missing person cases and um so I just the idea came to me when I got this idea that was like, okay, well what would happen if someone who was famously kidnapped as a child, like think of like an Elizabeth Smart type of case, if they went missing again as an adult and what would that look like? How would the media treat that? And then of course I got this other thread of an idea that was and what would happen if someone saw that person's face on the news and didn't have any memory of their original kidnapping but thought, I know that person, which is what happens with um, the protagonist, Fern, in the novel. You know, you kind of hit it like two things for me that I find really interesting as well with, with that, because I love true crime. And the mm-hmm. missing the missing people stories I find are the most heartbreaking of all the of the true crime genre, just because. Yeah, they like they're just up and gone and these poor families are stuck forever. But what do you what draws you to to those stories? I think it's just the unknown of it. And then your brain goes in and starts to fill in details. Um, and there's something really, really haunting about that to me, I think. I grew up for the first 10 years of my life in a town where um, before I was born in the 70s, there were these two or three girls who were like between the ages of nine and 12, I think, I don't, I'm not sure, um, who went missing. And it very much haunted the area for a while. They're, they've still never been found. Um, And so I think that that's always kind of been in my head. And that's been something that's maybe drawn me to this kind of thing on a subconscious level, um, because those stories were always there and were always just really scary. And, um, and yeah, so I think it's just the unknown of it that even if it's like a murder case, and there's um, no solution that anybody knows about the killer's not caught or whatever, you still have a body, you know, you have something. But when someone just disappears, that that is frightening to me on a whole other level. You're talking about fear, and you really do delve a little bit into the, the psychology of fear. What drew you to that part of the human psyche? 
Really, I think it comes from I'm somebody who, well, the protagonist, Fern, she suffers from an anxiety disorder. And I also, that came a lot from myself. I have um, anxiety. I take medication for, I see a therapist, all those things. So that's something that I've really struggled with in my life. And um, with that anxiety, of course, there's so much fear. And I always say, and it's kind of a joke, but I always say I'm afraid of everything. And But it's also not kind of a joke because um, I think when you have an anxious brain, you're always looking for um, what is the thing that's dangerous here? What is the thing that could hurt me that other people aren't thinking about? Um, And so I really want to explore that, not just on the anxiety side, but have um, this character, her father, Fern's father, Ted, is a psychologist who does these um, fear experiments. And I wondered how much would that play into how Fern is now with this anxiety disorder and um, and how how does that push her or kind of paralyze her in a lot of ways in her life. It's interesting that you suffer from that kind of anxiety and yet you write books, thriller books that are described as chilling and disturbing and, and deep. It is it is it kind of um you know, therapy for you or do you end up more anxious after you finish a book? I think it's both. <laughs> um in some ways it just confirms my fears in a way, even though I'm creating these fictional scenarios. But I also do research into things that are like this. So then that gets into my head. Um, But it's also cathartic at times. I mean, especially with writing Fern in this book, um, like when you when you have anxiety and you're thoughts kind of get away from you. It's really easy for other people to look at what you're saying and just say, oh, you're being crazy. Like, that's nothing to worry about. And you kind of internalize that. And I definitely did. And so for a long time, I just thought, okay, I'm just, I have these crazy thoughts when it's like, no, that's just how my brain works. That's just how it's wired. And there are certain things you can do to try to retrain your brain. And so um, in writing Fern, I just, I came to have a lot more empathy for myself, I think. So it was really, yeah, a therapeutic, cathartic process, I'd say, in this book. Is she really one of the more personal characters that you've written to date? I think so in that respect. I mean, there are certain um, other characters that, while I don't have their um, specific personality features or um, their experiences, there's always like a true emotional core to it. Um, but I think, yeah, just writing her anxiety was like a way that I saw myself on the page that I hadn't um, before in things that I've written in a fictional sense. And I think for people who maybe don't totally get it, I mean, you really you set it out and it's just on page three where she's watching the news and it, it's something where they hear about like a rare disease that somebody might get. And most people are like, oh, it's rare. That means you won't get it. But in her head, she hears it as that's something that you could get because it's possible. Mm -hmm. And that really distills it like right down to that one sentence, what people who suffer from her kind of anxiety, the anxiety you share, what goes on in their heads. I have a friend who I got into this, not an argument, but we were talking about something that I was afraid of. And she's like, okay, but statistically speaking, this is how rare it is. And I was like, statistics literally mean nothing to me. If there are (laughs) statistics, then that means that it's happened. happened, And therefore it could happen to me. (laughs) (laughs) 
How do you want readers to feel when they get to the that final page of this book? I mean, I think that <laughs> I definitely put my characters through a lot in this book, well, specifically Fern. And so um, I think they'll feel a little bit like, wow, what was that? Who was this family? What was going on here? Um, But I also want them to feel the possibility of being able to push past fears or not even being pushing past them, but just the idea that you can live with those fears and that that can be okay. And that that can be just a part of who you are. And that doesn't keep you from having certain experiences Um, because a lot of her journey in the book is, dealing with these fears that she has, um, but also trying to find a way to live with them, not just get rid of them altogether. Because I don't think that that's that realistic. We don't just, um, you know, face our fears one time and then we're like, oh, okay. And that's never scary again. It's like, we realize that this is just a part of being human. And um, so I hope that readers can kind of look at the things in their life that Um, they're afraid of or they're anxious about and how can they learn to live with those things while not being paralyzed by them, which she has been in a lot of ways. And maybe also be a little bit more sympathetic to people who do feel that way, even if you're a daredevil who's willing to jump off a cliff and not think about it. Right. Yes, exactly. I really hope that um, I hope both that people who have anxiety um, feel seen with this book and um, feel understood. And I hope that it allows other people to see what that's like um, because it's it's just, it's, it's like anxiety, depression, those kinds of things are written off as like, oh, well, you can just like, you can just think differently or you can just push past it. And it's like, well, these are, these are how our, our brains work. And it's a fundamental thing about people sometimes. And so I hope that um, it allows other people to see a side of this that they maybe didn't understand before. Now, in addition to being an author, you also teach writers. What do you say to people who, I'm sure you get it all the time, I really want to write a book, but I don't know where to start? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think like you just have to, it's like speaking of fears, I think that that's that partly a fear thing that if you start, you won't be able to finish it. Or if you start, it won't be any good or nobody will like it. And I think you have to try to put that aside and just, you know, listen to the part of you that's saying, I want to do this. And usually if it's, I want to, it's because either there's something fun or joyful in it for you, or um, there's something that you need to express that you need to get out. And so I always just say, I mean, it sounds so simple. That's a lot harder than it sounds, but I always say, just start, just do it. And don't think about what's going to happen with it. What are people going to think? Just start and do it. And also be reading a ton so that you're getting all that, um, you're getting taught at the same time about writing from whoever you're reading. Um, And so I think that's usually just what I say. I always just say, just start. Being who you are and you know the, you you've told us about the anxiety that you that you've grappled with in your life do you is there always that voice in your head be thinking that okay I tell people what to do and now I'm doing it myself are they going to judge me differently um yeah I mean that that voice is always there and 
you just it's a, it's another one of those things. It's like it's like the anxiety brain. Like anxiety brain is a lot of lies that it's telling you. And so um it's one of those things that you just have to try to push past as I said, but there's a in the book actually. This is based off of a technique that my my real therapist taught me, which was um, Fern's therapist in the book tells her to think of her brain as a record, and that when she's getting these thoughts that just keep repeating that she can't get beyond, it's like the record is skipping, and she has to visualize moving the needle to a different whatever groove song, um, and so and so I think that works in a lot of different ways. It works for um, these anxious thoughts. It works for like the fears you might have um, as a writer or as a creator. Um, so I use that a lot. And I don't know if I just strayed from your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I love that we're we're sitting here talking about your thriller, which is an entertaining, really like edge of your seat kind of book. But at the same time, you're also giving us really solid life advice. And it's just great that the two have come together. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm glad that you feel that way. Thank you. So we've been talking with Megan Collins. The new book is Behind the Red Door. Megan, thank you for letting me pick your brain today. Thank you so much. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we chat with New York Times bestseller Sandra Brown about her latest thriller, Thickest Thieves. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.